Good morning to you. I'm glad for the opportunity to share with you my understanding of some of the things that I consider most important in my life. I always made a mistake. I taught what I believed. The problem was I believed wrongly. And so I taught wrongly. Now I have to live with it. But fortunately, God gave me long enough life so I could catch my mistakes, change my thinking. And now I am again sharing with you what I really believe. I hope I don't have to change again. <laughs> and so I I am glad that Dr. Jennings let me share my thoughts about the lesson with you. And I know that there is an audience around the world, particularly in Australia. Quite popular is this program. My oldest friend, Andrew, he writes to me and he says, I saw you in the audience. I said, yes. He caught me when I was napping. <laughs> so we are here today because the lesson written by MacGyver, I mean MacIver, tells us that we have to live for God. Now, try to tell me in practical terms. What does it mean to live for God? Haven't seen him? Haven't heard him? Haven't touched him? So all you have is what you find in the Bible. And the Bible was written on different levels. Because God is a parent, a father. He doesn't talk to me when I am in a cradle, as he talks to the man who is building a moon rocket. He talks differently to the farmer, and he talks differently to the Pharisees and the learned in the law. He is a father. He gives food that is proper in its place, in its time, to his ch children, to his family. He's a personal God. That's right. So we learn for the first time in the Bible that God is, besides being a creator, that he is the Father. Even though in our personal experience we get much more affection from the mothers in the family, because they interact with us constantly in our childhood. Father has to go make a living. And when he comes, it's a special occasion. But the mother is the nurturing agent. Then in the Bible, we find that God is the nurturing agent. He gives us moment by moment everything that we need in such a way that we can accept it, that we can 
include it into our own life. And so those who claim that, I, I remember I was in, in Keene, Texas, there was a lady that was preaching that the Holy Spirit was the mother, and God the Father was the Father, and so on. God is our parent. He creates us, he sustains us, and finally he brings us to the plate, to the place where he looks at us as his friends. That's when Graham Maxwell comes in. We used to be disciples, followers, students, listeners, and finally he says, I don't call you servants anymore, I call you my friends. That's the highest that you can be. The Bible says that friend can be closer than a brother. And I know, I just lost my brother two weeks ago. God wants us to be his friends. And friend lives for his friend. He puts him first. I have very few friends outside of my immediate family. What do I call a friend? A friend that when I call him at three o'clock in the morning and it's thundering and stormy outside and rain and all the rest and he says, listen, I'm stuck on Highway 154. I never heard of it. And I need your help. I jumped out, get dressed, get the GPS nowadays, we can do that. And I head there. That's what I call a friend. A friend is a person that when you are up to your neck in fire, he comes and stands by you. He burns together with you. The three worthies, they experienced it. They had a friend. And so we have a friend every day. And now the lesson is about, I want you to be my friends. Live for God, because God is love. Did you notice God is not justice? God is not friendliness, kindness, goodness, patience, forgiveness. That's not God. Those are actions of God. But the definition of God is God is love. And he created everything, everything on the designer law of love. And if you stop being controlled by that law of love, you disappear. God doesn't have to kill you. You disappear. You lost the law of existence. But we talk about love mile a minute. Everything that we like or we, it's pleasant to us, we call it love. But love is a principle. 
where you treat other people for the best of those people. Not the best for me, not the best in view of some law of the country, but what is best for that particular person, regardless of circumstances. That was my favorite question I gave to my students in class. Give me the definition of love, especially on high school level, they were just discovering what love was. And believe me, some of those expressions were strange. <laughs> but God lives for us. Isn't that strange? Parents, God gave them the power to have children. They create their children. And then they spend the rest of their life trying to nurture those children. God was quite happy by himself. We are bypassing the concept of Godhead and all the rest. But God decided he needs to, he wants to, he loved to have beings around him. So he created the universe. Believe it or not, you create the way you are. In every object of art, you find the character of the maker. Whether it's a painting, it shows the characteristics of the painter. The music tells you who the composer was. And so it goes. As we look at what God created, we get a picture of what God is. And he built into creation the principle of love. That means live for somebody else. If you do that, then we are not going to have to wait ten days in the upper room, you know, the experience in the upper room and they were all in one accord because they didn't invent civic yet. In one accord. And then, of course, they had differences of opinion. They would argue with the Lord. Lord, I cannot eat that thing that you call whatever. You know, that crawls on the way, flies in the air. I don't eat it. And the Lord says, I told you to go and eat it. Stop arguing, Peter. Yes, sir. You see, lack of understanding makes us look foolish. We begin to argue with God because we have our own ideas. And God says, be quiet and do what I tell you to do. Go to, from Joppa to Caesarea. It's a nice place, Caesarea. Somebody ruined it. Peter went, and all of a sudden, he understood. What did he understand? That God treats every human being as his own child. Regardless of our characteristics. Regardless. 
I was always taught that if you go public, it makes no difference where. If you go public, you have to dress up. So my friends meet me and they say, oh, you are all dressed up. I said, yeah, it's cold outside. <laughs> but that is a standard built into my psyche or whatever. You have to dress up. Why do you dress up when you go public? Because you respect the people you meet. It is out of respect. If I go to see the uh, 90-year-old, 99-year-old uh, Queen of England, I will put my best suit on. Why? To show respect to her. Right? So we dress because we want to appear in what way? Respectful. God wants us to respect him more than we respect ourselves. So this is the principle of love, built into everything, including the material things which are not living. Everything has interaction with something else. That is the principle that God built into our existence. Now here comes Satan and says, I want to change it. I have a better idea. I thought it through. I observed everything around and I said, I have a better idea. Let's do it my way. And God says, no, you can't. Why can't you? Because you'll disappear. Destroy the principle of love and you stop existing. It is the law of love, or in other words, the law of existence. It cannot be changed. And the disciples of three and a half years of listening at the University of Palestine, I mean, pardon me, of Israel, or Judah, they were the most educated men in the matters of theology. And what were they doing in private. Hey, I am better than you are. Hey, I will do a better job as a prime minister than you. And Judas says, well, listen, I have more education than all of you pe peasants have. I will be your treasurer, IRS. And they said, yeah, he has the presence. Did you notice that GC presidents, all of them are very tall. <laughs> I, I notice I don't have a chance. Thank you for contrasting that uh, with Satan having the idea that he thought he had a better idea, but that sucking black hole of selfishness that he wanted all the attention was such contrast to God's beautiful uh, unselfish love. Thank you. Yes, before Satan became Satan, he was a Lucifer. And Lucifer simply means the carrier of light. From Latin. It was the most beautiful thing. When you get up in the morning, the first light that comes and shows you what's going on is Lucifer. The morning star. It can apply to anyone, including your wives, 
your husbands, your children. They bring light to your life. And so Satan, Satan, figure it out. If he can do it, I can do it. If he can be God, I can be God. Read Isaiah 14 and Ezekiel 28. I can do it. But why would you do it? Sure, you, there are many things you can do. But why do you want to do them? To show that you are better than somebody else? To take their glory, their reputation to yourself. And that is the opposite of love. The opposite of love is not hate. I, for many years I thought that was the opposite of love. The opposite of love is selfishness. Me, 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 me. And the preachers used to say, to say that Satan had a problem with the I, 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 I. And we say me, me, me. That's in English. Selfishness. So why does Peter, who lived through the three and a half years of education, plus who was in the upper room for ten days, trying to figure out what to do. Have you ever been in a conference for ten days? And what happens? Where you begin to think. And all of a sudden those eleven fellows who lived with Jesus, they began to think. What was the problem we had while Jesus was still with us? Selfishness. Now we have to become one. Well, how do you become one? First you have to get to know each other. You know that I know very few people in the audience. Oh, we smile, we greet each other and so on, yeah, but I know nothing about you. You are friendly, that's it. That's the, that's the sum total of my experience. You're friendly, you believe in God, and that makes you closer and closer and closer, and we find that we could get along. Providing what? We are one. And of course, unity or uniformity, that's a philosophical argument we could spend eternity. Does God want uniformity or unity? Uniformity means everybody will look like me. I know. <laughs> God help us. <laughs> Uniformity and unity. What does mean unity? Thanks to my wife who is my local preacher. She said, you know, I work with people. They came from different walks of life, never seen them before. They come, they apply for a job. And the manager accepts them, hires them. And now I have 10 people to work with. And we work 12 hours a day. 
and we have schedule that is bang, 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 bang. You cannot spare a minute. You are busy all the time. Then you have to find a way to make sure that all those members of the group become a team. Become a team. When they were all in one accord, the Holy Spirit says, now I can work with them. And so now my wife's team is a team. They pray together. They love together. They work together. They stand behind each other every minute. If you find that somebody is really busy, then you go and help. That is a team. And in the church of God, God wants us to become a team. And not individual people, as precious as individuality is in America, God wants us to be a team. Which means, I care if you are the director. I will be glad to spend every minute of my work supporting you and helping you. I don't care if you are a janitor. If I see that I can be of some help, I'll do it. Actually, I earned my living by becoming a janitor at a university because I was poor. No money. And I had to live, pay the rent, a little bit of food, and study. And so I was a janitor. I cleaned the toilets and I swept the floors in the different school buildings at night. It was work. Teamwork. Other people came after me and they did the work of teaching and preaching and whatever they were doing. But I prepared it. I was part of the team. I was proud of it and I was paid twice as much as all the others. God blessed with an attitude we are here to help each other individually. We are too shy to express our needs. We want to be independent. We want to be self-sufficient. Okay, that's good. But sometimes you could slip up and say, you know, say a prayer for me. Or give me a hand, I have a hard time with this and that. Help me a little bit. Would you? And if you can't do it yourself, would you find somebody to help me? Yes, I would be glad to. Slip down and show your need, as in the family. The child, when he is, or she is two years old, she says, I will do it myself. That's it. But you make a mess trying to feed yourself. Yes, but I want to do it myself. And so the cake or the food or the soup comes all over the place. And what does the parent say? This too will pass. <laughs> they will grow up. 
and one day I will be sitting at the table, my hand will be shaking, and my child will come and, and help me. That's teamwork. God doesn't need me. He wants me. He created me. And he expects me to be his friend. And so Peter says, whatever he learned from Jesus, he wants to pass on to the people scattered around Asia Minor, which today is basically Turkey. He worked for those people, saved his time and means. He is the only one that should be admired. You know why? He took his wife with him. <laughs> the only one that is mentioned that brought his wife to work with himself. That's admirable. Because usually you stay there with the children and the pots and pans. I am the guy. I do the important things in life. Like what? Well, um, I sit in the office and I push the pencil. Big deal. Believe me, even monkeys know how to use a pencil. It could also be that the other wives were taking care of their parents with the children. That's right. And couldn't leave. <laughs> so let's be careful for what we're not told. And so Peter is a good example of what God can do with a rambunctious, that's a good word for Peter. Always first, always smart aleck, always ready with an answer, always I know it better. And he did probably. He becomes Apostle Peter, sent by God to tell us what it means to live with God. Now mind you, this is nice to talk about something that happened to Peter, upper room, and all the rest. I'm not interested in that. I learned that 60 years ago or more, and I had enough of it. I want to know what it means today, right now. Right now. Because the gospel is for the people and not for history. So God says, I want you to be one with God in all your doings. First, we have to have a unity of spirit. You can check your bulletin. Unity of spirit. What does that mean? We say the Holy Spirit, the good spirit, the evil spirit. There are all sorts of spirits. When God was creating this world, it says, And the mighty wind of God moved on the waters. And we say, aha, the word for wind and spirit is the same. So it was the Holy Spirit who was participating in the creation. Okay, if that's how you see it, good for you. What does it mean, the Spirit? 
The spirit of 76, what does that mean? You heard that expression. Spirit of 76, the unity of a nation, different among each other. But they wanted freedom. And they were willing to fight for freedom. So they were of one spirit. And God wants in this church, and I am part of the church, God wants unity of the spirit. Which means that one direction we go to the same goal. Apostle Paul said in one place, I forget what I used to be. I forget what I used to do. I forget it. And I press on to the goal presented to me by God. Never mind what you have been. I remember a friend of mine in Czech Republic, whenever he would talk to people about God, some people would say, well, you know, I used to be a terrible drug addict. I used to be a drunkard, and so on. And he says, why are you telling me that? Why don't you tell me that when you were born, you were using your diapers? That was worse than the other things you have done in your life. Who are you telling me about all your addictions and your problems and your sins? I don't want to know about that. I want you for who you are right now. You want to change? Fine. Go ahead and change. I will help you. But don't always bring back what you used to be. It's like the lady who was in an evangelistic meeting and many other meetings in the church and every and she was already in her 80s and every time she would give a testimony. And in the testimony she recounted all her experiences in the past. And she was a dancing girl in some places where we are not seen. So somebody asked her, says, Sister, why do you always remind us of what you used to be when you were in the dance hall? And she says, that's all I have, my memories. Is that what you have in your mind, your memories? You have no goals? You have no spirit of unity to push you forward? I was, uh, I studied in England, believe it or not. So when I speak ungrammatically, that's because I didn't learn proper English. But in England there was a, a dynasty. Once a man became a union president, he was hanging on to his job for life. His name was Brother Macmillan. It's, the story is well known. I'm not inventing it. And he stayed in the office for 20 years. Every four years, there was supposed to be a change. He hang on by various means for 20 years. And the saints, those below, 
are called the saints. They were chafing at it. He says, why can't we become union president? And so finally, after 20 years, they got enough courage and said, okay, let's change. So Brother Foster became union president. He was the most vocal against years of service with no change of leadership. Do you know how many years he was a union president? 25 years. <laughs> he hasn't learned a thing. And so we, we have a problem. We want to be in leadership and we don't want to be in, we don't want to be Indians, we want to be chiefs. Why? Maybe because life is easier when you can order somebody else and tell them off and they can do nothing about it. Right? But that is not being one in the spirit. That's uniformity. And we are against it. Every time I had some ideas come to my head. It always came to the place where I said, that's a metaphor. We are saved by grace. And I said, no, we are not. Oh, you heretic. Condemnable heretic. Because the Bible says we are saved by grace. I said, no, we are not saved by grace. I said, I'm saved by Susie. That's a better name. I am saved by God. Oh, you are saved by faith. I said, no, I am saved by Jesus. And they sputter and sputter and sputter and it says, they quote the Bible. You are saved by faith through grace and that is a gift from God. It's not your own and so on. I said, no, I am saved by Jesus. How did he say, from what was I saved? From cancer? No, I had my share. From what? Kidney failure? I had my share. Any other failure? I had my share. What is Jesus saving me from? You go to the Bible and it says, you will call him Jesus because he will save you from your sin. sin. What is my sin? Selfishness. Selfishness. I don't realize that I am selfish all the time. I think I am doing quite well. But when I stop and think about it, why did I do it? Because I was selfish. Selfish. And love means putting another person ahead of your needs. I played tennis. Sister White will forgive me. I played tennis with three ladies that need the exercise. They enjoy it, but they're on level one and a half, and I'm on level four and a half. 
And they always call me, come and play with us. So I come. And I'm beginning to get tired of it. Because I play tennis for their sake and not for my sake. And you know, it grows old. I want to hit hard to show that I can do it. I want to win. I don't want to simply give the ball to the ladies so they can put it away and make me look silly. And they do it. Notice, selfishness even in tennis. And I was so proud that I was playing tennis because my wife told me to exercise. And a friend of mine paid for my dues at Manker Patton. That's a lot of money. I can't afford it. So he pays for it. He's been paying for it for 10 years or more. More. And so I say, Sister wife, forgive me, I'm playing tennis. And you said some bad things about tennis. And I find that if I'm not careful, I will turn good exercise into selfish exercise. This is when you don't bring your bicycle to play tennis. That's right. That's right. That's why I have a stationary bicycle. So, so my neighbors don't see it. <laughs> yes? May I add that somebody brought to my attention one time something that really got me thinking. They said they thought that even worship could be selfish. If you come to church and you come to gather and all you do is take and take in and never contribute anything, they said that's selfish worship. You're not supposed to describe me. <laughs> not in public. Or even, even trying to be saved can be selfish. I'm so worried about me getting saved. Good luck to you all you moths. Find the flame on your own. I'm going to go be saved. You know, we should be so interested in the salvation of other people that we hardly even think of our own salvation because God's taking care of that. But we can, it's odd, it were, they were odd ideas for me to think that worship and salvation could also be selfish things. It's kind of like Moses, like you were saying, like he got to the point where he was willing to lose his own salvation for everybody else. Yeah. That's a good point. I mean, how many times have we heard... You know, I didn't get anything about out of the sermon today. Or how many times have we said that ourselves? We didn't get anything. <clears throat> really? Did you give anything? Well, I must confess, I go to parties of eating and drinking parties. And my friends always invite me, come on, we'll have a good beer. And for ladies, we have wine. So I went there once, or twice maybe, and I got nothing out of it. The food I couldn't eat and the drink I couldn't drink. So what do you do? You sit around, you walk around, you smile at people, and they want to share with you their drinks, and you said, no, thank you. And after an hour of running around, you said, I'm getting nothing out of here, I'm going home. So you can go to meetings get nothing out of there. And so we find that the unity of spirit is built 
on one component among others, and that is repentance from sin. We're not supposed to talk about repentance. We're supposed to talk about love. What does it mean to repent of something? away from it and to desire not to hurt somebody else. I mean, when you sin, when you think of what sin really is, it's selfishness, and selfishness ends up not caring about what you do, how it affects the people around you. It's, you know, I mean, that's the kind of thing that, that repentance changes. I want to stop hurting my relationships, my relationship with God, with each other, my own self. I want to stop hurting it and change it in a direction of saving. Very good. Yes. When you were talking about your wife's team and how you have 10 eclectic individuals coming together, uh, each with their own individuality and motivation and all the rest, and being able to become a cohesive, effective, with the, the... group being probably even stronger than the individual necessarily as each one's individuality can bring and contribute in their different characteristics and outlooks and experiences and benefiting from the the wonderful experience of your wife, being able to come together and and be a more effectual um, team because of their individuality. So that unifying element uh, brings out that, that characteristic. I appreciate that. Yes. You see, repentance has two aspects. Number one, why do you want to repent? What's your problem? Do you realize that what you are doing is something wrong? Or some preacher told you, you better repent. What does he know? Does he know that I am struggling? No. Has he visited you? No. So what does he know that I have to repent? There was a man in 1972 in Chicago. Walking the streets, main street, and from time to time he would raise his hand, and then he would point to a man and says, guilty. And he would keep on walking. And then again, he says, guilty to another person. And finally, the man who told the story to Jack Provencha, he said to his buddy, he says, how did he know that I was guilty? All people know everything, you know that? We just don't know everything because we are not all people. Repentance. Why do you want to repent? What causes you to repent? You have Brother Wesley, who on a horseback go from village to village to town and hamlet and all the rest, and he was going to gather people and scare the daylights out of them by giving the picture of the hellfire. And people were on their knees, crying their eyes out, swearing by all the saints and all the cows that they had, they will not be sinners again. And then he would go on. They were saved from what? From hellfire. 
because Wesley made it so real that they could also almost feel the, the heat. Then the Bible says, don't you know that it is the goodness of God that leads you to repentance? When you contemplate the life of Jesus, what do you contemplate most? How he was the servant of those around him. You were talking about the motivation of selfishness and how that melted away in that upper room, but also Christ's example in washing the feet of themselves. I wrote a little, little note to my friends on New Year's Day and sent it out by internet and two people wrote back and one of them, uh, he says, you know, you minimize the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus and you minimized the cross of Jesus. I said, that's correct. How did I minimize it? What is the sacrifice of Jesus? When did the sacrifice of Jesus begin and when did it end? It began when Jesus was born. That was the sacrifice that Jesus paid in respect to us and God. That's his service began when he was a baby. And you have 33 and a half years of service. And during that time, what was Jesus doing? He was showing us God's character. He was showing us the goodness of God. Why? To lead us to repentance. The goodness of God attracts my attention. And then at the end of his life comes the cross. And Christianity says very little about the life of Jesus. But they say a lot about the cross of Jesus. Now the cross of Jesus. It is the most important thing because of what? If you kill somebody that becomes important. Faithful to the end. Why do you find that Apostle Paul says, I preach Jesus and him crucified, and I de determine not to know anything about Je except Jesus crucified? What about Jesus alive? Isn't that part of the gospel? Yes. But you see, Christianity made the cross, not God, but Christianity made the cross the center of their gospel. Why? Because they say in the, on the cross, in the crucifixion, God poured out all his anger, wrath of God, his hatred, vindictiveness against sin. How many of you have seen sin? You have? I haven't. Seen the results of it. Yeah, so, I mean the results of it. You have seen it? The results of sin. A result. That's like 
the expression of the Holy Spirit. You don't know him, but you know his effect. I have not seen sin. And then Christianity said that we can move sin from one pocket to another pocket. From one shoulder to another shoulder. As if it was something, substance, that you can toss around. Today you will carry the, my sin and tomorrow I will carry your sin. And so we'll just toss it. And the last one who is stuck with sin will burn. And so we find uh, an Israelite takes his sin and puts it on a lamb. And now the lamb is a sinner. And then he takes the lamb and cuts his throat, pours the blood. But the lamb is still a sinner. Then comes the priest and he takes the blood of the lamb, obviously sinful, because it came from a sinner. And he goes into the temple and he takes the sin and deposits it in the temple. That's a wonderful story. How do you carry sin from place to place? A friend of mine that I really expect, respected, a great scholar, he says when the priest took the blood into the temple, that's how sin entered the temple. That's it. No explanation. I was going to ask him two months later, but he died in, the, in between. Never explained how. You see, we have created our own world of ideas. And we hang on to those ideas. Sin is a relationship. How do you switch relationship from one person to another? And so I put my sins on Jesus. I believe that. And then, now Jesus has my sin. I am an enemy of God when I am a sinner. Now Jesus has my sin. Does he become the enemy of God? When I sin, I rebel against God. Now I shift that sin to Jesus. Now Jesus becomes rebellious against the Father. You've just given up your selfish heart to him. That's all. And he heals. It is a fearful thing. My favorite author wrote, it is a fearful thing for a sinner to fall into the hands of a living God. That must be terrifying. The sinner, the rebellious person, is finally in the hands who can do him in. No wonder people flock to the temple. They flock to the churches. Which churches? Those that teach about hellfire and brimstone. They are scared. Don't you realize that it is the terror of God that leads you to repentance? <laughs> now you wouldn't be here if you believed it. I don't believe it. It is the love of God that leads me into repentance. And so Jesus is on the cross. He took all my sins 
not only mine. All the sins of the past, of the present of his time, and all the sins into the future, even those I will commit tomorrow. He took all the sins and put it on himself. And God wreaked vengeance on his son. What a lovely religion we teach. And notice why people say, I don't want to have anything to do with God. Started with Nietzsche. You ever heard of him? Nietzsche, a German fellow when he was 18, he got out from under his father's religion and he says, I don't need the God of my father. And his philosophy later on as accepted and used by many other dictators was my power will give me success. And if I'm not successful that means because somebody else is more powerful than I am. And of course God to be God has to be the most ferocious the most vindictive person in the universe to kill an innocent man like Jesus. Do I minimize the cross? No, I don't. You'll never catch me say that. But I see Jesus who represented the character of God. Not what Satan said to Adam about God, but what Jesus said to the people about his Father. That is the Gospel. Sure, what is the benefit of the sacrifice on the cross? What's the benefit of your certificate of education? You studied for 12 years or 15 years or 20 years, you finally get a certificate and nobody can question you that you are qualified, qualified to perform what you have studied for. Is it important? Yeah, try to practice medicine without a diploma. I mean, there are many people who practice medicine, and they call themselves doctors and all the rest, but they are not telling the truth. You know, I can get a doctorate for $10 because it takes $6 to send it to me. So there are many people who say, we will save you. They're not qualified. When Jesus died on the cross, he qualified as my Savior. Why? The plan of God was that Jesus will become a man. What kind of man? At the time when Jesus came, there was only one type of man, and that is mortal man. There were no immortal men in those days. So he agreed to become a mortal man on this earth. From the beginning to the end, he had to prove that he lives as a human being. Any man who said that Jesus did not come as a man, let him be anathema. Jesus came as a man, lived as a man, died as a man. 
Why was it important for him to become a man? Never mind the cross. To become a man. It was the only way to save man. Well, I mean, he took up Adam, had a mission, and uh, failed. And we needed uh, God to show that a man relying on God can succeed. What was the main accusation of Satan against the Father? God that law cannot be kept law cannot be kept you are right so Satan said God was selfish he made all the creatures obey his law never mind that it was the law of love he made them obey it but he himself is exempt from it so God says okay Jesus he says I will become a creature I'll become a human being and I will show to the universe that a human being in terrible condition after thousands of sinful existence that at that time I can keep the law of God completely or perfectly. The same word. And so Jesus came to show to the universe that the law can be kept. How long do you have to keep the law to prove the point? The sacrifice had to be complete and to prove that you kill the sacrifice. Then there is no reversal. You can't go back. You gave your life. Jesus gave his complete life to humanity. He couldn't go back. And Satan said to God about Job, huh, sure, you favor him because he is faithful to you for money. God says, okay, test him. And then Satan says, yeah, money, nothing, money. For skin, skin for skin. God says, try it. And then the captivity of Job was turned before he died. So we don't know. Maybe he remained faithful or not. Abraham, show me your complete dedication to me I will be number one in your life. Sacrifice your son. Abraham says, Okay. Isaac said, Okay. And God says, Enough. And they found the lamb and all the rest, you know the story. So there were examples where people dedicate themselves to God timely and Jesus had to give it to the very end so there will be no possibility of Jesus to say I changed my mind that's why a cross is so important for the universe to be saved yes and to think also that was the ultimate moment of where sin also showed its true face and Satan showed his true face of this is what ultimate selfishness will do. 
is it will go and attack and kill an innocent son of God that has come to show God's character to us. And so we have both the contrast of God's character being revealed and also that of Satan's being revealed at the same time. That's why we should use very seldom the word only. Cross means only this, or this means only that. No, there are many facets. And we are here studying those various facets. Shall we pray? Thank you, Lord. You have been patient with us because you love us. And we pray that you would continue to lead us to repentance. Lead us to the unity of spirit that we may live with you and for you. And we thank you in the name of Jesus. Amen.